This week on the podcast, I am joined by Ben Guest, who is manager of the Gresham House Energy Storage Trust, ticker GRID, GRID, to talk at some length about what has been happening in the battery storage system, an important part of the renewable energy industry, and one we need to get right if we are going to have much hope of meeting our net zero targets in time. But this sector has been way out of favour with investors and both Gresham House Energy Storage and its peers in the battery storage sector, which includes Gore Street Energy Storage and Harmony Energy Impact Trust, have been trading on big discounts, wider even than the average in the renewable energy sector. So 40% or so in most cases. Why is that? And why does Ben Guest think that that actually could be about to change? Well, he'll be telling us why in a moment. And I'll also be speaking to Guy Anderson, manager of the Mercantile Investment Trust. This is a trust that's managed by JP Morgan and invests across the mid-cap and small-cap segments of the UK market. It's a large trust, large and liquid trust, around £2 billion of assets, and has a strong performance record over the last 10 years. Guy Anderson has been the manager there for 11 years, and we'll be talking about the UK market, why it remains, as it seems to be permanently unloved and permanently cheap. Why is that and what could be about to change? It was a topsy-turvy week in the financial markets this week with the US bond market in the spotlight, uh, not for the first time in recent weeks. That was partly because during the middle of the week, an auction of long-dated treasuries failed to attract as much interest as was expected, resulting in bond yields at that end of the curve spiking higher again, though they finished the week around flat, where they started the week at around 4.7%. There was also uh, further comments from Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, reiterating his message that interest rates could stay higher for longer. In the gilts market as well, yields edged slightly higher over the course of the week. In the equity markets, the S&P 500 did not complete its longest run of successive daily rises, as uh, some had been hoping. That came to an end midweek, but that was reversed again on Friday with the S&P up over 1% yesterday, and that uh, taking the week's gain to around 1.5%. NASDAQ was even stronger, but the FTSE, which didn't have time to pick up on the strength of the US market, finished the week down around 0.75% for both the All Share and the FTSE 100. Uh, Gold was down a little bit, oil remains a little bit under pressure, but Bitcoin was a notable gainer again this week. It has been on quite a strong run over the last few weeks. The investment trust index, meanwhile, was at 1.65% over the course of the week, though again with quite significant divergences in performance. The number of gainers was around equal to the number of losers. The gainers being headed by DGI 9 has been on a very strong run recently. That was up nearly 10% this week. And also notable to see some of the growth capital, early stage private equity businesses doing well. So the likes of Chrysalis, Shehalian, both performing quite strongly over the course of the week. And in terms of losers, we saw mostly property companies uh, after their strong revival in the last couple of weeks, where discounts have come in quite significantly on a number of property trusts. There was a bit of a reversion this week with the list of decliners being headed by two commercial property trusts, one of which Picton Property Income Trust was the subject of an announcement that it is considering a merger with the larger UK Commercial Property Trust. 
which would also uh, result in that trust, a combined trust, becoming a self-managed vehicle. The market, though, didn't seem to take very kindly to that particular news. The shares of both those trusts down by around 9% over the course of the week. Turning to the news from the sector, quite a lot of significant results from larger investment trusts this week. We'll briefly summarise them in a moment. But in terms of corporate news, we heard about the merger, as I said, between UK Commercial Property Trust, ticker UKCM, and Picton Property Income, ticker PC. As I said, that didn't seem to be particularly well received by the market. During this week, we also heard results from UK Commercial Property Trust, which delivered a 0.6% NAV total return over its latest period. Its decision to confirm that it was in discussion uh, with Picton Property Income follows uh, market speculation of the last few weeks. Also in the property sector, there was more news, uh, not very positive, of course, from uh, Home REIT the investment trust that provides property for homeless charities and others. We had a couple of announcements here summarising the most recent developments in the efforts by AEW, which has been pointed as the transitionary manager of the trust, to dispose of properties at auction. They reported on two, one in which the average price received was around 50% of the purchase price and the other one about 32%. Not a particularly encouraging sign for what the valuation of this trust will be when the auditors finally agree on figures for not just last financial year, but the one before, where it's likely that there will be significant revisions based on what is now known about the value of the properties at that stage. However, those results look like they won't now be coming out until early next year. So there's still a long wait for shareholders in this one whose shares have been suspended since the start of the year. And there was also more news from Hypnosis Songs Fund, Ticker Song, the Music Royalties Trust, which has been at the centre of, if you like, a, a shareholder revolt in the last few weeks, resulting in the retirement of the chairman and other directors. The positive news here is that a new chairman and second director has now been appointed in the shape of Rob Naylor and Francis Keeling. Rob Naylor, who will take over as chairman, has 25 years experience in the capital markets and specialising in particular in investment companies and is best known perhaps for having been until very recently the chairman of Roundhill Music Royalty Trust, the other large music royalties trust that came to the market a few years back and which was sold this year to an American business called Concord. The sale there going through at a much more modest discount to NAV, around 11%, than the discount which is currently nearer 50% for Hypnosis Songs Fund. The bad news, however, came in the form of disclosure that the board has reviewed its financial position and has decided that it would be inappropriate to uh, pay another dividend until it has completed its proposals for the future of the trust, and that won't be until April next year. So no dividends in the meantime from this trust, and evidence of further issues with both the balance sheet and the cost that this trust is facing. There was a continuation vote on the 26th of October, which was voted down And so the process of waiting for the new board to be appointed and complete its review of where this trust goes next goes on. Another trust that's been in the spotlight recently is European Opportunities Trust, ticker EOT, managed by Alex Darwell and his firm Devon Asset Management. 
The news here was that an activist shareholder, Saba Capital Management, had contacted the board to complain about the terms of the tender offer that the company had previously announced. That was to offer shareholders the opportunity to tender up to 25% of the share capital of this trust at a price of NAV minus 2%. Saba Capital then responded by putting out a public letter saying that they thought that it would be better if the trust put forward a 50% tender and claimed that if they stuck with their 25% tender offer, the shares would move out even further to a 15% discount. The Board of European Opportunities Trust described that particular suggestion about the discount as conjecture and said they will continue to look to protect a single-digit discount. So that one has yet to be resolved. There is a continuation vote coming up in due course on this trust, and it'll be interesting to see how shareholders vote when that comes round. We also heard from Downing Strategic Microcap, ticker DSM, where the board has announced that it has decided that it would be in the best interest of shareholders to start a managed wind-down of the company's investment portfolio. Like all uh, microcap investment trusts, this one was already quite small in terms of market capitalization and has become smaller as a market cap of around 27 million only at the moment, which is uh, too small to be viable. At least that's what the board has concluded. And they will be announcing more details about that in due course. This trust actually also reported its interim results for the six months to the end of August, showing a NAV total return per share down 8.2%, which was not, however, as bad as the negative 12.8% total return of the FTSE AIM all-share benchmark. We also heard from Aberdeen New Dawn, where shareholders have been offered the opportunity to roll over into Asia Dragon, ticker DGN, another Aberdeen-managed investment trust. The tender offer that Aberdeen New Dawn had put to its shareholders for up to 25% of the share capital was oversubscribed, with in fact 67.7% of the share capital electing to tender their shares. Given the oversubscription, shareholders who did tender their shares are going to be scaled back on a pro rata basis. However, the proposed merger with Asia Dragon is to go ahead, and as a result of that, some £215 million of net assets will be merged into Asia Dragon, bulking it up and therefore making it a larger and more liquid vehicle. The shares were admitted to trading this week, though the immediate reaction was for the discount to widen, which has now gone out to around 18%, its widest for some time. Finally, on the news front, we learnt that at RIT Capital, tickle RCP, the current CEO has tendered his resignation and is proposing to emigrate to Israel. And he is going to be replaced by a colleague, Nick Koo, who has been with JRCM since 2020 and is a member of the investment committee. And from a couple of firms who have announced changes in their fee arrangements, Aberdeen Equity Income, ticker AEI, is cutting its fees by, on average, around 15%. And Henderson Opportunities Trust, ticker HOT, has decided to drop its performance fee. Turning to results, we've had annual results announced this week from Fidelity Special Values, ticker FSV, managed by Alex Relt, which produced an NAV total return of 5.9%, marginally ahead of the all shares 5.2%. Notable this for Alex Wright saying that his belief is that UK valuations are pricing in extreme pessimism and pointing out that the UK equity market is trading on 
around 10.9 times forecast 2024 earnings, compared to 13.4 times for Europe and 18.6 times for the US. And its own portfolio currently trades on a forward PE of 7.7 times, which is very much close to the lowest it's been over the last 10 years. And results too from AVI Global, ticker AGT, whose manager Joe Baumfreund, we heard from in the podcast not so long ago, it reported its annual results to the year to the end of 30th September. NAV total return of plus 15% compared with uh, 10.5% with the index that it compares itself to. And here, some potentially significant news for a number of investment trusts. In the results, uh, AVI Global noted that a private member's bill promoted by Baroness Ross Altman, well known as a pension fund expert, is having a first reading on the 22nd November. And this bill will seek to remove investment companies from the relevant legislation that has resulted in the significant cost disclosure row that has been reverberating around the sector most of this year. This is the legislation that requires investment trusts, unlike open-ended equivalents, to uh, include all the underlying fees when they're disclosing fee levels to their shareholders, uh, which uh, many in the investment trust world regard as being both inappropriate and unfairly penalising investment trusts. Interesting to see whether that one gets through Parliament. And results too from Schroeder Oriental Income, ticker SOI. NAV total return down 3.5% against its benchmarks, a rather larger decline of 8.1%. And from Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, ticker SST, which uh, reported a gain, NAV total return of 6.5% against its uh, Asia X Japan benchmarks rise of 1.8%. So all these results ahead of benchmarks. So that's an encouraging sign for the most recent period. BlackRock Greater Europe, ticker BRGE, similar kind of story. NAV total return here up 19.2% against its benchmarks, 15.8% total return over the 12 months to the 31st of August. International Biotechnology, ticker IBT, also reported annual results. NAV total return plus 2.7%. And the NASDAQ Biotech Index, which it regards as its benchmark, down 1.4% on the same basis. So outperformance here as well. And then turning to interims, a number of significant trusts reporting their interim results, not least Scottish Mortgage, ticker SMT, well known to virtually everyone in the investment trust world, which has benefited not least from its shareholding in chipmaker NVIDIA, which has been a shareholder since 2016 and which has been performing very strongly as a result of excitement about the potential of artificial intelligence, uh, AI, and NVIDIA being the company that manufactures the great majority of chips that can be used in next-generation artificial intelligence uh, developments. The NAV total return there was minus 2.7%, which was some 5 or 6% behind the FTSE All World Index. We also heard from 3i Group, an even larger trust, this nearly $20 billion in market cap, reporting interim results six months. NAV per share was uh, up significantly, around 10%, mainly driven by the continued strong performance of the Netherlands-based retailer Action, who's uh, returned 15% over the six-month period. Notable here, though, that the chief executive, Simon Burrows, said he remains cautious about the investment and realisation market for private equity, given the macroeconomic environment in general, the breadth of geopolitical risk, and our belief that the full implications of the global recalibration of interest rates are still yet to work fully through the system. 
And there were interim results also from 3i Infrastructure, which uh, reported NAV total return of 6.3%, which is marginally below its uh, target 8 to 10% return on an annual basis. And from Biotech Growth Trust, where the NAV total return was minus 4.1%, slightly behind the NASDAQ Biotechnology Index. And there were plenty of updates too, from the likes of HG Capital, Regional REIT, Hickel, the Infrastructure Trust, and Octopus Renewable Energy plus Riverstone Energy, Schroeder's Capital Global Innovation Trust, with the former Neil Woodford Patient Capital Vehicle, where one of its largest holdings, uh, Atom Bank, has been written down, unfortunately, and from Foresight Sustainable Forestry, which came to the market only uh, very recently and has reported NAV per share down 9.3% over the six months to 30th September. Not many things going right for that particular trust at this particular point. If you want more details of any of these, you will, of course, find them on the Moneymakers Circle website alongside a profile, which we'd actually completed midweek, of Balanced Commercial Property Trust. More profiles to come, and there are some additional comments on market developments and some of my favourite investment trusts, those that I think have the greatest potential in the current climate. This year has seen a uh, dramatic sell-off in uh, all renewable energy trusts, at least until the last week, and none more so than in the battery uh, renewable energy storage sector. And so my first question to Ben Guest, who's the manager of Gresham House Energy Storage, was what does he think has been behind this dramatic decline in share prices since the first quarter of this year? Absolutely. And thank you very much for having me on. I believe the main reason or reasons that uh, investment trusts have sold off in general are just simply higher rates and that the investors in these trusts are seeking yield in less risky areas now that yield is available in areas like gilts. So that's one. But why have energy storage fund and renewables trusts perhaps sold off more significantly? I think there's probably a little malaise in the green sector at the moment, if I can call it the green sector, the renewal space due to recent political commentary in the context of not being as interested in maintaining as rapid a pace in favour of reducing costs for people. And then there are specific reasons in the battery storage sector, which will no doubt come on to relating to the readiness of our counterparties to trade our batteries. But it has been a fairly dramatic decline, to say, as recently as the end of the first quarter, when you put out your latest fact sheet, we're still talking about an 80% NAV total return since launch. And since then, the shares have fallen from, I think, a peak of 180 earlier to about 86 a day we're talking. Uh, So that is quite dramatic. And yes, of course, we've had interest rates declining. But let's start then by just digging a bit deeper into this issue of what's been happening in the battery energy storage system space, of which you are one of three practitioners who have listed vehicles in the investment trust world. So battery energy storage, as far as I understand it, the whole idea here is you build battery plants that sit next to the grid and you plug them in and then they're used when the grid needs uh, spare capacity, essentially. Am I basically right about that? Yes, you're absolutely right. National Grid ought to be able to use our batteries if we're registered with them through something called a balancing mechanism to balance elements of the intermittency that manifest as a result of renewables. We do also use our batteries to tidy up the frequency on the grid, what I like to call the ripples on the surface. And, And we can also actively trade our batteries in the wholesale market. So there are various levels to the revenues we can try and extract. But the one you mentioned is is crucial. Yes. 
So essentially, that's the crucial one. You say you're the, you're the sort of fallback mechanism when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine or anything like that, and we don't take renewable sources into the grid. Now, I gather there have been some issues with the way that this system is working, in particular with having the ability to connect, even when your battery storage is available and the grid should be taking it. They haven't actually been taking it because of some technical factors or things that have gone wrong. Perhaps you could explain what that element of the equation has been. It's remarkably simple to explain. It's remarkably complex to solve and has been and is getting solved. So the very simple thing is, and you said we are the crucial backup. We're not being used as that backup. The backup right now are gas-fired power stations. They are dialed up, turned on effectively up to a certain level, push off some renewable power so that then they can be dialed up and down to counter the intermittency of renewables. That's the current picture. It means you lose renewable power, you're turning on more CO2 emitting power. The holy grail is to uh, be able to use batteries in that context. And you wouldn't have to dial them up because effectively they import and export around a zero point. They don't need to be generating anything to, to be able to be flexible. The unfortunate reality is that while gas-fired power stations are very large, batteries in general are quite small. So when you have to trade these assets and deal with a certain amount of intermittency, a certain amount of power that needs to be found in or out of the system, you need to do that as quickly as possible, sub-minute sort of periods. And the national balancing engineer or the lead trader at National Grid is simply not able to do that with the current systems. There isn't enough time to do so. So there isn't the time to aggregate the batteries and use them together in the right combination. It's just too complicated for a human, the relatively manual systems that we've got at the moment. So that's the very simple technical explanation. Not enough time and not enough fingers to type up instructions in a short period of time. The challenging upgrade is to upgrade the system so that they can trade any combination of assets that are competitive, uh, which we tend to be, which is our key frustration. And the system that is being launched next month, promised on the 12th of December, is that the system will be able to trade upwards of 300 assets per minute, as opposed to three. So is this a failure to invest in the right infrastructure or is it just a technical problem? I mean, this is something that presumably computers could do or, or even artificial intelligence could do at one time. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely a failure to invest in the systems at all in the right time frame. They are being invested in, as I've mentioned, but they weren't there in time for us to be used when we have shown up in large numbers. So when this new system comes into force in December, assuming there aren't any initial sort of glitches or anything, you would expect to have more of your battery storage systems being used in the system as demand and, and supply goes up and down. Is that right? That's exactly right. It's exactly that. You shouldn't need to dial up gas, therefore turn off as much wind, which means more intermittency remains as well as the large amount that's already there. And we're there ready to take it. That's it. Okay, so you said your prices are competitive. How do you set your prices? And are you always going to be competitive at the margin? Because mm -hmm. if you've got lower costs, you're obviously plugged in right next door to the grid. So you imagine that if the economics have worked so far, then they should be uh, callable. How much of your capacity do you think will be used then if we get to this happy new world? It's a very significant amount of batteries that are needed. We've got 45% of our power being generated from renewables, sort of roughly a year to date. That translates into 10 plus gigawatts of swing in power one way or the other. This is just a number, but just to compare it with something, the fleet size right now has like three gigawatts of connected capacity. So we will still need some gas until the batteries are there in the largest numbers to be used. But the interesting thing is that that need is growing all the time because the intermittency is going to keep growing. The amount of renewables installed are going to keep growing dramatically. So the anticipation is that we're going to need at least three times this amount in terms of 
power, gigawatts, um, but in terms of duration, the amount of hours that these batteries can charge or discharge against those connections is probably upwards of two hours. So 60 gigawatt hours for every 30 gigawatt target. So it's a, it's a sector that will grow uh, in terms of installed capacity of batteries, probably about 20 fold before we reach what we need as the underlying renewables grow as well. Okay, so we're going to need it, and uh, there isn't enough of it, basically, is what you're saying. There's not enough of it. And you asked, how do we set our prices? We, we simply set our prices in the balancing mechanism, and there's a, there's a way of setting your prices. And we can see everybody else's prices. It's a remarkably transparent system. And if we want to sell power, we can sell it at very low prices if we've charged the battery at very low prices as well, while a gas-fired generator needs to cover the cost of its fuel and also other operating costs as well. So that's why we're almost always competitive with other key assets that are available but tend to be fossil fuel driven. This is obviously generalizing across your whole set of batteries. Is there a price level at which you can't make a decent return on your investment? You can't generate a profit? And if so, what is that compared to the present price? It is absolute prices that matter to us on a half hourly basis, not the average prices that you might think of for power prices. We're, we're very much driven by the volatility in power prices. So it's very difficult to say what's the price at which you want to sell your power because it all depends on what you buy the power at. And the simple reality is that power prices fluctuate from very, very low levels intraday and oftentimes negative levels. And a negative level happens as a result of National Grid asking a wind farm to buy back the power that they would have sold, meaning that they're paid to buy something. And that is effectively a negative price. That's why you get negative prices on the system. And then at the other end of the spectrum, any given day, you tend to have either lulls in renewable generation or peaks in demand or both, which mean that power prices are higher. So essentially, so price is set by the marginal action carried out by National Grid. So if they're asking power to get off the system, power prices can go to zero or negative. If they're finding that they need power desperately and there isn't the renewable power at that moment in time, then they're paying ever more expensive prices to find the supply. Okay, but there must be some level at which you can distinguish between making a profit and not making it. Oh, absolutely. 100%. There's always different levels of profitability at which we make more or less money. That's absolutely correct. And so the flatter the market is, as it's called, the flatter the market, the less money we make. So you like volatility, basically. We like volatility, absolutely. Right. And for some reason, or for a variety of reasons, there hasn't been that much volatility this year, and uh, power prices have come down and therefore you haven't been making as much money as you were making before and perhaps as you were hoping to make. A hundred percent. And it's quite simple to explain. There are two key reasons. Uh, one is demand is lower this year because a lot of consumers, corporates and otherwise in residential, consumers are locked in high power prices and therefore are suffering high energy bills. And so if you've got lower demand, you've got the same supply that hasn't gone away and lower demand. So you tend to have the marginal demand met by cheaper power, and therefore you have lower peaks. At the same time, if you think of that balancing mechanism, and I mentioned that National Grid sets the price for power according to the action it's taking, if it's resorting to natural gas-fired power stations to balance the market, it's swamping the system with supply because it has to have that power ready to deal with the intermittency that then emerges or is there all the time. And so you're always turning on more gas-fired generation than the market needs, and therefore you're just oversupplying the system. And that's about to change, as we discussed. But if you combine that with a lower demand environment, uh, you have a cyclical low, or if you like, a perfect storm in the short term. 
Okay. Before we come and talk on about what you're doing as a business, what is the outlook for power prices as far as you see it from mm-hmm. here in general terms? And then obviously we've talked about the volatility. You would expect that to uh, increase as well. So what is your outlook for uh, power prices? I'm sure people don't really kind of follow this very closely. We know there was a big spike last winter because of Ukraine and so on. And we don't know what's going to happen this year in the winter. But uh, tell us what you think. So there is a seasonality to power prices. You have higher demand in the winter, lower demand in the summer in this country. And so you tend to have higher peaks and therefore more volatility for our business. So generally a seasonality and we'd expect power prices to rise through the end of the year, which is a normal pattern. Longer term, we've had very low gas prices and gas does set the price some of the times I mentioned. And so the normalization of this should drive a normalization of, of power prices. But over the longer term, it's reasonable to assume that power prices should not, um, especially wholesale power prices, the power prices that are excluding all the taxes and green levies and so on that they ultimately added on to wholesale prices to get to the retail price. Um, but the wholesale power price should drift lower. The cost of renewable power is very low. And if you have more of it, and more of it is actually allowed onto the system thanks to batteries, storing it for release later, then you should in general see stable to lower power prices over the longer term as you have this very cheap marginal cost power showing up on the system. You know, it doesn't cost anything to generate renewables at the margin, very little. So over the longer term, we should be quite excited that power prices could just come in quite low. That doesn't necessarily mean it's bad news for batteries, by the way. You'll have negative and high prices sometimes, but the average price, the general price that people see should be lower over the long term. Because renewables are a deflationary technology. Turbines are getting cheaper, panels are getting cheaper, solar panels. Okay, so just looking at then this year, 2023, you have a target of, I think, delivering an NAV total return per annum around 8%. And then you pay a dividend, which is around uh, notionally 7%, but actually goes up and down with depending on the discount, of course. But this year, you say you're not going to cover your dividend by the revenues you're making from your systems that you have in place. So apart from the problem we just discussed, why are you confident that you can get back to a a level where you can actually cover the dividend every year? Thank you for the question. So we covered the dividend in 2021 and in 2022 and haven't this year because of the issues we've mentioned. The very simple reason is that, and we've been driving towards this since we IPO'd, it's basically reaching a level of scale where even in a cyclically weak or even structurally weak in the short term because of the systems issues at National Grid, despite these, we should be able to cover our dividend. And this will come about as a result of new projects coming online. So without another pound issued in equity, so therefore no greater share count, we are almost doubling our megawatt capacity or gigawatt capacity, connected power, and tripling our storage capacity, so the size of the batteries themselves, the megawatt hours or gigawatt hours of batteries. And that alone, even at the current revenue rate, substantially increases our revenues and EBITDA. And especially a very exciting part of this, and the reason why the megawatt hours are growing so quickly, is because we've got a large stock of batteries which are in the process of methodically extending the duration on existing batteries. And because battery systems, projects, don't pay more rent, don't necessarily pay much more or any more insurance, O&M costs, operations and maintenance costs, grid charges... All of those revenues drop to the bottom line, or substantially so. And so we should see higher EBITDA margins. So higher revenues, higher EBITDA, and actually 
accelerating EBITDA. All of that just happens over the next six to 12 months, depending on you know what target capacity you're talking about, certainly 12 months comfortably. And that gets us back to cover and, and a bit at today's revenue levels. Of course, if the market then recovers and life is breathed into the sector, thanks to national grid systems, we can go back to really excelling. And we're excited about that. So if it's so important to extend the battery life from one hour to two hours, or it's so helpful to do that, I suppose the question is, well, why didn't you do that at the beginning and have two-hour batteries? Because that seems to be the one that everybody wants at the moment. Is, is that right? It's very simple. Uh, at the outset, the business model was not driven by opportunities with marginal trading opportunities of a second hour in any given period of time. So you've got to have a sustained peak in power prices of upwards of one hour a lot of the time to justify the extra battery capacity. That wasn't there. You know, renewable penetration was 20 to 25% when we IPO'd. Those trading opportunities weren't there. They're there now, and they will be there even more so going forward. So if you were right about this, and obviously your share price was very strong before this last yeah. uh, 12-month period, as people yeah. priced in the expansion of the capacity you had in place, and you were able to do a share issue uh, not so long ago, which is pretty mm-hmm. remarkable in the current climate. One of the mm-hmm. few trusts that managed to do that, a secondary share issue. Right. I mean, we come back to this basic question is, has the market overreacted to this? So they seem to be extrapolating, okay, there's interest rate factors, but are they just extrapolating you know, current market conditions into the future? Have they got something fundamentally wrong here? The reaction is understandable. So as well as everything else I mentioned at the top of the session, um, we're also a thinly traded stock. So it doesn't take much to move the price. And so if people are heading for the exits because they suddenly feel, gosh, there's suddenly a much greater risk here than we'd appreciated. And frankly, than we'd appreciated because we were not aware that these systems were not in place. And it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation to explain, but I can have a go if you want me to. But th- that basically means that because prior to this year, we were doing something called frequency response. Frequency response is a service that you also provide to National Grid to stabilize a frequency. That service became saturated towards the end of last year. And that meant that we weren't really focused on the trading opportunity. And if we were, it was very much on the wholesale trading opportunity. The wholesale trading opportunity, as well as a frequency response this year, have been a less attractive frequency response because it's saturated. The wholesale market, simply because those high peaks in the day are not there at the moment because of lower power prices, lower demand. And so the balancing mechanism should have suddenly shown up as that third leg and didn't. And that's because of the systems not being there and us not appreciating that. And of course, if we didn't appreciate it, certainly the investors wouldn't have appreciated this. And then thought, gosh, well, how long is this going to take? And I think it's a you know, show me environment now. I don't think investors are going to wait, uh, sorry, trust necessarily, on average, because some are, that the systems are going to improve and that that's then also going to lead to improved revenues. So I do think that there's an overreaction, but there's an understandable, strong reaction to an unexpected piece of news. It's also the case that you have a relatively high discount rate compared to many other renewable energy trusts. I think it's around 11%, which is higher than other trusts. Is that because that is designed to reflect the greater risk in your thing because you've got projects that haven't yet come on stream and you're involved in a US enterprise as well as some way into the future? Is that why you have a high discount rate or is there some other factor involved? Are you just more conservative than some of your peers? Well, we take guidance from our valuers in terms of the range within which we should set or the board should set the discount rate to be precise. 
No, I believe that the range is higher for our asset class than for uh, renewables is because we have a higher level of merchant revenues. So we don't have the long-term contracted revenues that certain contracted businesses do, like renewables, at least for the next 10 or so years until rock income and fit income, feed-in tariff income goes away. Um, So that's the core reason. We are working on an alternative revenue stream that would be longer-term contracted that we've talked about but not said much about because there's commercial sensitivities around it. But we think that we can probably do that And if we unlock that, that would then change the risk-reward profile of the um, asset class. Well, that's interesting. When won't we hear something about that? You know, we want to be doing this within sort of 12 months, even if it's a small way. We ran a trial earlier this year that that demonstrated that it works. And it's a matter of putting the necessary contractual setup in place to to be able to do this. So, um, yeah, we're excited about doing that. And if you got to that point, then you would expect in due course to start reducing the discount rate. Do you think that would be just? I think I think that would be fair. We would have five to ten year contracted revenues and ability to extend that contracted level as contracts expired. So, yeah, we'd be excited about doing that and capable of doing that. Okay, so then tell me about this decision to sort of go international. You were involved in a Californian project. I don't know how the economics of that compare to the economics over here, but uh, what is the rationale for that? You mentioned a couple of things that have changed since you IPO'd. Is this an attempt to add, obviously, diversification, but uh, how effective a diversification will it be to have a Californian battery storage system as well as your UK ones? So the international electricity market is colossal. You know, the UK is maybe 1.5% of the global market. So why wouldn't we look to international markets And one of the great successes we've had is to enter the the UK market, in fact, help form it early on. And so our sense is that if you enter international markets as they're forming, as they're emerging, you have the ability to create projects that are much more cost effective than just being a second comer later down the road and and buying projects from others or getting sort of connections that aren't as good, etc. So the reason for wishing to expand internationally, and we're doing a lot behind the scenes to create pipeline that we don't report on yet because it's not ready for prime time, we can really take part meaningfully. And so, of course, it creates diversification. It means that we're also positioned to grow over the longer term if investors are willing to back us at 30% international and potentially higher levels over the long term. We think our skills are highly exportable. Electricity markets are similar. They rhyme. They're not identical, but they rhyme in terms of regulatory systems, in terms of the installed technologies, you know, wind and solar. A lot of the regulatory systems and uh, national grid type systems, how the markets are balanced, are similar as well. Wholesale market structures, marginal pricing being driven the same way. Uh, and so on. And you install the same equipment, just in slightly different configurations to, to suit the market. So it's all highly exportable, creates diversification. They're all at different stages. And so it, it really is an interesting and exciting thing to do over the longer term. And you've said that you don't need any more capital from your shareholders to complete this project and to complete all the extension mm-hmm. in battery lives that you've talked about and bring your other yes, projects that are in the pipeline online. So you're confident you can do that. You've obviously got some debt to help achieve your targets. Are you worried about the higher interest rate environment? What impact is that going to have on you? Is that a factor as well? Clearly, the higher interest rate environment reduces the degree to which you become levered. We've got modest amounts of leverage at the moment. We've got an NAV of £840 million, even if the market caps at a substantial discount to that. We've got £110 million of debt and about £50 million of cash. So net debt is actually quite low. The six big projects that we're commissioning in the near future, we actually showed photographs of in our interim results to demonstrate just how progressed they were. 
That hopefully provides confidence that we're bringing projects online soon, but also shows that most of the money's been sunk into them. So in terms of incremental capital that we need to connect these projects is very limited. So we won't be substantially increasing our debt to commission our new projects or to add the battery capacity because we already paid for those batteries as well. So yes, clearly higher interest rates makes you less able to leverage up, um, but we've got a cap of 50% of NAV, not GAV, to be clear. And so that's keeping us uh, modestly levered. So if we put all this together, you've got growth in capacity, you've got, in your view, view for power prices to develop in a way that's profitable for you, and you've got this international diversification, and you believe that what's happened this year is exceptional because of the constraints around national grid and so on. So you've got to be pretty positive that from this level, at least, shareholders should be taking some comfort in all these factors that could reverse quite quickly. Absolutely, yes. It's never much fun to go through a roller coaster ride the way we have. We've had to work extremely hard this year to make sure that none of the risks you've brought up manifest, whether it's debt or sort of understanding just how bad this environment might get for us in the short term. We've worked very, very closely with National Grid over the last few months to get confidence that they are committing to the systems, committing to the systems in a timely way and making sure that batteries are then used once they're online. That's been a big part of my day job over the last few months, as, as well as being a sort of a typical fund manager and making sure capital allocations are, are sensible. And then it's been a very challenging environment from a construction perspective. One of the reasons these projects are showing up incrementally now rather than in the past is because the ability to connect projects across the sector has been challenging as well. That's a subject we haven't just discussed, but that's also been a real roll up your sleeves environment in terms of getting projects connected, not built, but connected. Right. Just briefly then, tell us about the construction problems. I mean, some of your contractors have gone bust, basically. Is that what's happening? There are sort of three parts, really, um, in very simple terms. You build what goes inside the fence, the batteries and all your kit, and that's the easy bit. It was difficult during the lockdown period. You know, battery prices were very high and certain pieces of kit were expensive and they got stock at ports and that sort of thing. And that's all opened up and actually we're at record low prices for batteries now. So building a battery site is actually quite straightforward for us. The grid companies themselves want to see you connected, but they're all becoming much more nervous and constrained in terms of bandwidth uh, because there are so many new projects coming on across the piece, you know, whether they're battery, solar or wind. So they are challenged and they've seen a lot of senior engineers retire as well. And we've clearly had Brexit and that sort of impacts resource as well. And then the missing piece in between is something called an ICP or interconnection provider. It's a specialized contractor that has the necessary insurances and authorities to connect very high voltage equipment to the grid and be trusted to do so. That's the segment that's been particularly troublesome over the last two years. These companies often aren't very large companies and therefore don't offer significant um, protections against non-performance. Therefore, you pay them in milestones. But due to the lockdowns and other delays, those milestones have been stretched out. That then impacts their balance sheets and makes them go pop in some instances. That's what's happened this year. That means the whole selection of ICPs has disappeared and you've then got to give the contracts to the remaining ones. And of course, they become very busy and that leads to delays. And all that combined makes the grid companies more nervous about starting their works until you've really finished the yours. And so then projects get strung out even more. So it's it's a concertina that's sort of as extended as it can be in terms of construction timeframes. And hopefully they'll start coming in as the sector organizes or reorganizes itself. Will it ever make sense to get into that business yourself? 
into the construction sector. Well, into joining uh, things up, yes. Yeah. We are contracting more directly with the subcontractors, but we're not actually sort of hiring people who would actually do the works on the ground and buying diggers and so on. No, we're not doing that. But there's definitely value in getting closer to the construction. Absolutely. So my final question, I guess, is this. And I've noticed that since you put your results out recently, the uh, number of your non-exec directors of the trust have been buying some shares between 85 and 105 p. I don't know if I can ask you whether you have a substantial interest in this trust as well. Am I allowed to do that? Of course you are. And I do. I'm personally, if I've got my numbers right, a greater than 2.5% shareholder in the trust. So I've got a very large exposure personally. I'm very, very aligned with the performance of this vehicle. Very good. And so that just leaves me with this final question. We know where the share price is today. We know where the reported NAV is. And I think you make quite a strong statement that you think the NAV is justified, mm, I think, in I your recent uh, statement. So I guess the question is, has anything fundamentally changed from the original perspectives you had when you came to the market to um, make you think that this isn't still a very viable and potentially interesting venture? No, nothing at all. The renewables are showing up at the pace that we expected. They're just as intermittent as ever, causing the same trouble in terms of needing to be addressed. And batteries do that fantastically. So if you look past this pretty significant wobble or air pocket this year due to sort of lower revenues and and then the causes for them. We'll look back on this period and go, well, you know, that was a sign of the nascency of the sector and some of the aftermath of the high gas prices in 2022 that um, locked in high power prices and and led to lower demand and so on. So no, if you look through this cycle and through these short-term structural issues, the outlook for batteries is very, very powerful and globally as well, not just UK. So that 8% NAV per annum target, if one kind of projects it forward, we should be able to get back onto that trajectory at some point. That's the plan. Absolutely. So that was Ben Guest, manager of the Gresham House Energy Storage Trust, ticker G-R-I-D. When I caught up with Guy Anderson, the manager of the Mercantile Investment Trust, which, as I said, invests across the small and mid-cup segments of the UK market. My question was, we've been waiting a long time for the UK equity market to attract some love and attention, and it looks very cheap, but it has done for some time. So do you think we're close to some sort of catalyst guy for a significant improvement in the UK market? It's hard to know when and what exactly the catalyst will be. But you're absolutely right. We've been through what has felt like a a fairly extended period now where the valuation has been very low and where we have seen significant outflows from UK equities. And clearly that magnifies the pressure on the asset class. But there are a number of things looking forwards where we could begin to see some of those factors that have been headwinds could begin to turn and turn more positive. And Sitting in my seat, I am particularly optimistic about the outlook for mid and small caps when we think about the opportunity over the next three to five years. But it's absolutely impossible to call what's going to happen over the next six months. I would say that any kind of revival in your sectors of the market has to involve continued economic growth. Uh, Is that right? That is absolutely correct. But don't a lot of people fear that we are either in a recession or about to go into one? What's the JP Morgan view on that? My assessment would be that there is a significant disconnect between the narrative and expectations of what's happening in the UK versus the actual reality on the ground. And this has been very stark over the last 12 months in particular. So if we think back to 12 months ago, we had a government which was in a certain amount of disarray. We had a change in leadership. We had quasi-quartering budget, et cetera, et cetera. 
And coming out of that, there was a significant reset to expectations for the economic growth this year, with this year, in fact, being the most widely predicted recession. And clearly that has not yet come to pass. What we've seen instead is actually the UK consumer has been, and the UK consumer is, of course, the backbone for the UK economy. The UK consumer has been far more resilient than had been anticipated, despite many of the inflationary pressures, which of course hurt the consumer spending power. So the UK consumer has been far more resilient. And so we've actually seen the UK going through an economic upgrade cycle and forecasts today for the size of the UK economy in 2024 are around three percentage points higher than they were 12 months ago. So actually we've seen the UK being better than expected. And yet the question on everyone's minds is, Have we just kicked the pain to the right? So has the recession simply been deferred rather than avoided? And that, I think, is obviously the key question. And that is one of the reasons why UK assets are trading so cheaply. And then mid and small caps specifically, you're completely right. They are more cyclical than the large cap index in the UK, which actually has a fairly defensive bias to it. So they are more cyclical, but also smaller companies are more susceptible to the pressures borne about to the cost of financing from higher interest rates. So going through such an extreme rate hiking cycle as the one that we've been through, that has, of course, added pressure to mid and small caps versus large caps. Before we talk about your portfolio just a bit, just tell me how far does politics intrude into your thinking? We are coming up to an election. There will be an election in a year's time. Maybe it's a foregone conclusion. We don't know. A year's a long time in politics, as we know. A week's a long time in politics. So anything could happen. How do you factor political risk, if you see political risk, either sort of geopolitical risk on a global scale or UK-specific risk into your thinking? Yes, absolutely. And it's something that we can't ignore. And we definitely incorporate it into our thinking. If I separate the two for a moment, so if we think about the domestic component first and then, then more international geopolitical risk. So from a domestic perspective, first of all, I would agree with you, nothing is inevitable. So whilst there is a wide expectation of a certain outcome at the next election, nothing is inevitable until it happens because so many things can change. However, when doing our analysis and thinking about the portfolio positioning and we're making investments in companies that we expect to hold typically for anywhere between three and five years, and in some cases, we have holdings that have been in the portfolio for more than a decade, we are absolutely thinking about the range of different political outcomes. What I find reassuring at this point in time is that actually, if we take the, what I think is probably most people's baseline assumption that there is in one way, shape or form, a Labour-dominated government, the Labour Party are being very keen to project their business-friendly credentials. So this is not the situation that we had at the previous election where there was a clearly a small risk, a small probability, but a a significant negative outcome from the Corbyn scenario. In the case of Starmer, he's clearly doing everything he can to woo business and to try and persuade the electorate that they are in fact the party of choice for businesses, that they have strong economics in their DNA, etc., etc. As far as the Tories are concerned, clearly we've seen the way that the Tories have behaved through the last few years and 
in terms of their policies and they have put in place some policies that people would not describe as being terribly business friendly. So you you just think about the taxation regime on the North Sea as an example. So I don't actually think there's a huge difference between those two. So I'm not overly concerned at a top level. Obviously, when we're thinking about company specifics, there are certain sectors or industries that may be more at risk depending on which party comes into power. And so, of course, we consider each of those in turn. In terms of international geopolitical risk, that's clearly a bigger question. And the main theme, I would say, from a UK perspective over the last couple of years has, of course, been what has happened in Europe in terms of having a war actually in continental Europe, not something that was anticipated, I would say. But then also looking further afield, we of course have what's going on in the Middle East, but then also the bigger structural changes that are happening to the broader geopolitical landscape. And here I'm obviously referring to the changing relationship between the West and China. And I don't think it's terribly contentious to suggest that the trend of globalization that we enjoyed for the last 20 years is going into reverse at the moment. And that has clear consequences both for economic growth, but also from a structural uh, or a, a structurally higher inflationary environment than perhaps there has been as that sort of deglobalization occurs. And so we have to consider lots of moving parts. I think it's fair to say we wouldn't assume that we have a huge edge in assessing how those factors are going to play. Um, But we need to consider them when building our portfolio so that we're not taking extreme risks on certain exogenous factors that are outside of our control. But just finally on that point, then, as you say, we've had a Tory government for a good number of years now. Have you seen any evidence to suggest that the UK economy, and by creation, therefore, the sectors you look at, has changed from being a low productivity, relatively high inflation country? Has it changed from that? Yes. From being a low productivity. No, we have not. And, and that has been the question that everyone has grappled with over the last, I guess it's over the last 15 years now in terms of why we're not seeing productivity gains. And it is a very good question. And no, we have not seen any improvements on that front. I would add, despite that, because that does sound quite gloomy, despite that, there is still plenty of potential for businesses that operate in this economy to grow. So it's really important to separate the economic landscape with the landscape that individual businesses are operating in and how they can grow. And then, of course, with the financial markets and where there are good opportunities for individual shares to appreciate and generate strong returns. Now, of course, it's easier to achieve that in an environment where we have good economic growth as opposed to when growth is relatively scarce, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just goes from being a tailwind to being a headwind. Right. We'll come back to that because that's an important part of your approach. But before we do that, perhaps we just remind listeners how your trust fits into the investment trust landscape and also into the JP Morgan stable of investment trust landscape. So JP Morgan has a mid-cap investment trust. It has a UK small cap trust and it has Mercantile, which is essentially both of those put together. And your benchmark is the All Share Index, excluding FTSE 100 members and excluding investment trusts. So your universe is about 400 companies, something like that? That's correct. And so your strategy is a relatively concentrated portfolio. I think you have about 60 stocks in your portfolio, something like that. 
Are you trying to pick the best 60, basically, out of both the mid-cap and small-cap sectors? Is that sort of roughly it? Yeah, that's a good summary. So we're looking to deliver long-term capital growth by investing in a portfolio which has around 70 holdings today, but spot on. So a portfolio of around 70 holdings, it could be 60, it could be 80, but that kind of ballpark, which are spread across both UK mid-caps and UK small-caps. And I'm agnostic whether they're technically a mid-cap or small-cap, but that's the area in which we're fishing. We do have some holdings of companies that are in the FTSE 100. I think it's worth mentioning that makes up around 10% of the portfolio, but those are simply a function of companies that we have held when they were mid-caps being promoted up into the FTSE 100 due to strong performance, and we don't have to sell them when they're promoted, but we keep a lid on that component of the portfolio so that we don't have some sort of size drift over time. And the reason we think that mid and small caps are really interesting over the long term is because, first of all, when we look at long-term returns, mid and small caps tend to outperform large caps. That doesn't happen every year, and clearly the last year or two have been examples where, in fact, as, as you rightly said, the FTSE 100 has outperformed the mid and small caps, but over the long arc of history, they tend to outperform, and that is because smaller companies tend to grow or have the ability, at any rate, to grow at a higher rate than larger companies. And I think that's something that intuitively makes sense because as companies continue to grow and grow and scale, their growth is ultimately limited by the underlying growth of the markets in which they operate or indeed by GDP growth. Whereas if you're a smaller company, you have the ability, of course, to expand into new markets and just to grow at a higher percentage rate than those larger companies. And so that fundamentally is why we think this is an interesting part of the market. And whilst the UK is absolutely out of favour at the moment. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't a huge number of really exciting businesses that we think are going to grow tremendous amounts over the next five or 10 years. Okay, but just to complete this point, so are you actually restricted from owning AIM shares, for example, and are you restricted from actually owning other investment trusts, even though your benchmark excludes them? Good question. No, so the benchmark is really used as a performance comparator. It's not a limitation in terms of where we can invest. So we can invest in AIM and we do invest in AIM. We can technically, if we wish to, we can buy other investment trusts. We don't as a general point, but we could, should we so desire. You do own 3i, for example, which is, for some reason, always excluded from the investment trust. (laughs) And that is one of the longer standing FTSE 100 holdings. So that's been in the portfolio. That's a good example of a company that's been in the portfolio for over 10 years now. And yes, it was promoted into the FTSE 100 quite some years ago, but we have continued to hold it all through that time. But presumably also you do aim to have diversification across different sectors. I mean, are there any sectors which you, you don't invest in? I know you've been underweight property, for example, but in general terms, you're going to have some exposure to all those sectors. But despite having a concentrated portfolio, you're still offering to your shareholders a kind of broad exposure to the mid and small cap. Yes, definitely. So this is a generalist portfolio. There are no sectors that are verboten, as it were, and we will invest everywhere. You're, you're exactly right. Property has been an area that we have avoided for a few years, although it's something that we have recently I would say dipped our toe in a couple of quite specific stocks, but it's been a a huge underweight for a few years now. But sort of looking down at the portfolio, the key sectors are consumer, industrials, technology, and in part because those are some of the areas where we find some of the most exciting opportunities. But we have exposure to a broad range of sectors, and that will always be the case. And if I asked you to describe your investment style, 
I imagine the word quality will come into it somewhere. I mean, people are always a bit strange when people say, I want to invest in a quality business. But I mean, that has a specific meaning in for management terms, does it not? So is that your style? Is quality quality growth or quality value or what? Yes. If I had to pigeonhole my uh, style into two words, it would be quality growth. However, I'm personally not a huge fan of the buckets of just growth or value because actually I think it's really important to consider everything that is available and then to try and get exposure to the areas that we believe will generate the best possible risk-adjusted returns. When we think about quality specifically, and this is hugely important, we're talking about the quality of the earnings. So we're looking, generally speaking, to invest in companies that have good levels of profitability, by which I mean good profit margins, but also returns on invested capital. That's hugely important because we generally want to invest in businesses that are going to generate cash and they're going to reinvest that cash in their own business and generate economic value by getting a good return from that cash that they're investing in their business and thus driving growth. To my mind, that is the highest quality form of return that one can generate, the sort of internally cash-generated growth. So we spend a lot of time looking through and understanding the financials of the business, but also the levers that affect where the profits go up or down, et cetera, et cetera. But then also a lot of time, as is quite typical for many mid and small cap managers, we spend a lot of time meeting management teams. So my team, we do around 350 management meetings a year. So that's typically with the CEO and CFO of these businesses. And we spend a lot of time in those meetings discussing how they're going to allocate their capital in order to drive future growth. And that's really important on that quality dimension that we talked about. On the growth dimension, what I would just say is the thing we really care about is what we believe the company will deliver over the next few years and how that compares with the market's current expectations. Because of course, we're looking for that variation in perception. So we're typically looking for businesses that we think can do better than the market currently expects. And in terms, if you just put some numbers around it, we said the UK market looks relatively cheap. Can you quantify that at all in terms of what's in your portfolio and how that compares to the UK market overall? Absolutely. So in terms of the overall UK market, just to put some numbers on it, the UK market in aggregate is on around 10 times forward earnings at the moment. And these are sort of ballpark numbers, but it's on around 10 times future earnings forecast earnings. And that is around a 40, 40% discount to other developed markets. So the UK market is trading at what I would call a double discount. So due to structural factors, it typically does trade cheaper than other developed markets, but that discount is roughly double the normal level. And interestingly enough, the FTSE 250, so the core mid cap market, which is the bulk of what we do, is also trading just a smidge over 10 times earnings. And typically, smaller companies do trade at a bit of a premium to larger companies. So that premium of smaller companies over larger companies or mid caps over large caps has completely evaporated as well. So the overall UK market is very cheap relative to international markets. And then mid and small caps are also very cheap relative to large caps where they normally sit. So you've got sort of discount upon discount upon discount. If we think specifically, or if I talk specifically about our portfolio, so the portfolio is also on about 10 times earnings. I actually look quite carefully at the amount of cash that the company is generating, because I think that's a better, I mean, there are lots of different valuation metrics that we can use, but I think that's a better gauge of the real valuation. 
and the portfolio is trading on about an 8% historic free cash flow yield. And that compares just for context, the benchmark is more like 5%. So in other words, our portfolio is generating far more cash per pound invested, which I think is really important. So briefly then, just tell us some of the things you've been doing in the portfolio. What have you been changing this year? What sort of levels of turnover do you normally have? And what have you actually done this year and why? So this is not a high turnover strategy. So turnover this year has been running from memory, I think it's in the high 20s percent, which is not a million miles away from the usual average. And inevitably, that incorporates both a little bit of nipping and tucking in individual positions, as well as actual removal of some investments and insertion of new investments. As I mentioned earlier, one of the quite recent changes that we've made is we've started dipping our toe in a couple of property companies. So that's an area where we have not had much, if any, exposure over the last couple of years. So we've made two investments in property companies this year. One is called London Metric and the other one is Shaftesbury. And those are two companies which when looking at property, and generally I'm not a huge fan of the sector still, but when looking at those companies, what is specifically attractive about those, if we take Shaftesbury as an example, so they own much of the real estate around Shaftesbury Avenue in Covent Garden. So we're talking centre of London, highly sought after locations. And what has drawn us to that, quite frankly, is the fact that the shares are trading at such a significant discount to the book value of the assets. So if you're buying a share on a 40% discount to its book value, there's quite a lot of risk already incorporated into those forecasts. And the reason we've acquired those shares recently rather than, for instance, earlier in the year, as we could have done, has been based on the fact that as we've seen the interest rate cycle moving through, we've obviously gone through this huge period of rate hikes And that has a direct implication on property values because property values are directly tied to interest rates, obviously in a negative fashion. So we needed to see some of those valuation resets work through the system. And there's always a bit of a time lag for that. And then the other component is, of course, we want to see how the assets are performing. So one element is, of course, what is the valuation? The other is what is the underlying performance of those assets? In other words, are they able to rent out their space? And are they able to increase the rents for those space? And from an operational perspective, the performance has been pretty strong. And I think that's really important because there are many real estate assets, property assets at the moment, that appear to be very cheap if you just look at valuation. But the reality is the valuation may not reflect reality because it's still tied to the past. And also the operational performance may not be terribly encouraging because they have high vacancy rates or because they're unable to put through rent increases. And so having that pricing power is, is supremely important. So that's one area. It's still a huge underweight in the portfolio. Another area, just to pick one up, but one that I think is is quite interesting that we've increased our exposure to a little bit is through a couple of ways to the motor insurance market. So this is a highly cyclical market and generally one that I think attracts or can attract lots of capital at at the wrong points in the cycle. But what we have seen is having been through a period where claims inflation has been extremely high and underwriting has not been a profitable endeavor for these businesses, the motor insurance market has been hardening quite significantly. So prices have been going up quite significantly and they have now moved up ahead of claims inflation. So those businesses are moving back to profitability. And where that then becomes interesting is, first of all, 
if you're a motor insurance underwriter, so you're at a positive inflection point in terms of profitability, but then also if you are a business that can benefit from the fact that consumers are being asked to pay significantly more for their motor insurance and therefore are more likely to shop around. So with that in mind, we have a new position in a company that's called Sabre Insurance, which is a specialist motor insurance underwriter and in moneysupermarket.com, which is the price comparison website, which generates a significant amount of their revenue, obviously from the motor insurance market. The motor insurance cycle is not the only driver of that new investment in money supermarket, but it's absolutely a key factor at play there. Someone who's just had a, my renewal notice, I can certainly vouch for the fact that the price is going up and that I might exactly. be forced to go and have a look at one of the price comparison sites. So that will be a cyclical investment for you, though, because the cycle will turn again at some point, presumably, and you want to get out at the right time. Correct. So anything else? You mentioned two interesting things. What have you got rid of recently? Is there any theme behind them, what you've been selling? So I wouldn't say there's been a huge theme, but maybe two areas that I'll mention. So one is that we have... I would say gently been increasing our domestic consumer exposure over the last three or four months. And that potentially contrasts with the broader narrative that the UK consumer is in a very difficult place, et cetera, et cetera. That is from a position where we are already overweight the domestic consumer. The reason we've had the confidence to increase that somewhat is because we have gone through an inflection point where wage growth, as I think you mentioned at the beginning, has remained quite robust. Employment levels are, of course, still quite high, but those two factors combined mean that wage growth is now higher than inflation. And so we've reached that tipping point where the UK consumer is back into experiencing real wage growth. And that's very significant from our perspective. And periods of real wage growth do not generally coincide with negative environment for uh, those consumer-facing businesses. And so that's an area, and that covers a large number of holdings, but that's an area where we have gently been increasing. And that has typically been funded by gently pulling back on some of our industrial exposure because we have to accept when we look at pretty much any of the lead economic indicators that it's pretty tough out there from an industrial perspective across all regions. PMIs, so the key lead indicator, are, are down below 50 and the number below 50 is indicative of contraction. But it's not a blanket, everything in industrial is difficult because actually it's very much down to the subsectors and industrial is obviously an extremely heterogeneous bunch of sectors. And so, for example, just to pick one, aerospace is still recovering post the pandemic. And actually, businesses that are serving aerospace are still typically doing quite well. Again, oil and gas investment levels have generally been reasonably positive. And so companies that are facing that are doing quite well. Whereas in contrast, anything exposed to, for example, semiconductors uh, and you know investment into semiconductors has been negative and life sciences has also been negative. So it's very important that we consider the specific end markets of those businesses in which we're investing. And I think IMI is a good example, just whilst I'm on it, of a company that one would look at and think, okay, sorry, so this is an engineering company that makes valves that go into a number of different process industries, including oil and gas. But typically it is cyclical. And so when you see those lead indicators pointing south, one might be tempted to think, okay, this is a business that's going to come under significant pressure. Actually, the reason I mention it is it's one of the largest holdings in the portfolio, but also they reported their Q3 trading update just this morning and in fact increased their guidance for this year because trading has been more robust. So it's really important to look down into the details of the specific end markets for each business. 
Now, your trust has uh, outperformed your comparator, I think, in sort of seven out of the last 10 years, something like that, and you're ahead of that uh, comparator over most periods, though perhaps not the last year, 12 months. But I was encouraged to see that you actually have increased your gearing quite significantly, and gearing is one of the things that investment trusts can use effectively to produce higher returns if they get the timing of the quantum of the gearing right. First of all, what are the constraints on gearing within the trust, and where do you sit now compared to other times in the past or while you've been in charge of the trust? So in terms of the range, in theory, we can go from 10% net cash up to 20% geared. In reality, we don't actually have the financing in place to go up to 20% geared, but we can, based on the current debt position and size of the trust, we can get up to around 17% geared. The way that is financed, just for completeness, is through a combination of debenture, which was issued in the year 2000, and some private placement notes that we issued in the summer of 2021, uh, which was fairly opportune timing. So that is fixed debt with a range of different tenures going out at the longest up to uh, just under 40 years maturity. And all of that debt combined has a blended cost of just under 4.2%. And so clearly where we're sitting today, that's pretty attractive financing. In terms of where our gearing sits, it's at the upper end of our historic range if we think back over the last 10 to 12 years. So we're sitting at about 12% geared as of this morning. And that is clearly... A signal. So it may or may not be interesting to hear what investors are saying, but I think what they're doing probably betrays what they're really thinking. So that is at the higher end of our recent historic range. So hopefully that says all that needs to be said. Indeed. And in terms of the trust as well, overall, obviously you say your primary objective is capital gains, but you do also pay a dividend and that dividend has been growing. Does that just fall out of the portfolio or is it actually actively managed, the dividend? So the dividend is definitely an outcome. So it's not something that we specifically target in terms of our investment style or or our investment approach. I think a good byproduct of focusing quite closely on how much cash businesses generate and businesses that do generate cash means many of them do tend to be quite healthy dividend payers. And we are in a position, the board have this goal, which is to grow the dividend at least in line with inflation over the long term. If we look back over about the last 30 years, the dividend has grown at about an 8% CAGR, so 8% per annum over that time period. So clearly well in excess of inflation. And indeed this year, or the last financial year that the dividend increased again, I think it was by 4% last year. Where we're sitting at the moment, of course, we can't guess what the board will choose to do, but dividend receipts into the portfolio have absolutely been pretty healthy this year, which I think is a good indication of the underlying health of the companies in which we're investing. And indeed, the fact that they have strong balance sheets, I think is really important at this point, particularly in the economic cycle where there is uncertainty and where the cost of financing has increased. So in aggregate, the leverage of portfolio companies is actually very low, which I think is another plus point. And then finally, your trust does trade at a discount. I think at a double digit discount at the moment. I've got a figure of around 13% at the moment. What is the board's policy about that? And That must be pretty wide by your historical experience. Would that be right? Yes, that's correct. So the discount is absolutely at the wider end of where it has traded. If we go back over the last three, five years, whichever time period we choose to look at, it does move around based upon typically sentiment towards the UK. So there are periods of discount volatility that we tend to see. But yes, sitting around 13% is at the wider level. The board's policy is that they have approval to do share buybacks and they do share buybacks periodically. And in fact, I noticed that they have been buying back shares more recently 
over the last few weeks. They have been quite active in the market buying back shares, but there is no formal target or limit. They prefer to keep it on a, a rolling brief. So that was Guy Anderson, the uh, manager of the Mercantile Investment Trust, which sits in the UK oil companies sector and is the largest and also the most liquid trust in that sector. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.